Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Real Talk with Riz Khan. This is your premier learning and growth podcast, and we're delighted that you uh, are joining us once again for episode seven, which is titled Lead Leading and Managing in Difficult and Challenging Times. And once again, we are thrilled and delighted and super grateful uh, to have another guest who will be sharing an introduction very shortly. Uh, just a reminder, you can uh, listen and watch uh, Real Talk with Riz Khan across all major podcasting platforms. It's available on um, Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Amazon Music, and of course, you can subscribe and watch on YouTube. So the last episode was episode six, Language is No Barrier, and we had our third guest from Macedonia, uh, Esma, who's a mathematics and science teacher who shared lots of pearls, lots of wisdoms and reflections on, on learning and teaching uh, in the 21st century and, and parenting as well. But I'm absolutely thrilled and delighted to welcome a colleague and a great friend of mine who've had a, the pleasure of working with uh, during many school evaluations uh, across the regions, Sonia Erickson. What a delight to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Rose. Um, I guess uh, I've never been part of a podcast before. I have a big note up, please do not swear, so I don't say anything <laughs> inappropriate. <laughs> and uh, I thought maybe people might want to know where in the world I'm sitting, where I'm coming from, a little bit about me. Um, so I'm sitting in southern Norway wow. and I work currently exclusively for the IB, that's the International Baccalaureate, as an educational advisor, as an independent consultant like yourself. And um, I've been in education now for, oh, I hate to think how many years, but more than 35 years. Wow. Um, and I guess I have experience from multiple contexts, different countries I've worked in, different sorts of schools, whether they've been state schools or private schools. And also for a couple of years when I lived in East Africa, I actually ran my own um, how can I, publishing company. It was called Compedit Designs, and I worked that out of Nairobi whilst I had my one and only daughter. And I got to the greatest feather in my cap, I think, in that <laughs> industry was I actually got to produce all the supporting written documents for the East African Safari Rally. That's amazing. What, what an accomplishment. Yeah, well, for me, it felt wonderful. I've never done anything like that before. Mm. I was working at the time in a publishing company and I decided to put up my own company. And when they did that, I was approached by Marlborough, who was in those days allowed to sponsor rallies. And um, they asked if I, I had the capability. Well, it was only me, but they didn't know it was only me. So I said, yes, I did. And then they shifted to Martini and it became the Martini East African Safari Rally. So before I knew it, at my home, I was receiving lots of magnets of champagne and all the T-shirts and caps and pens and bags and goodness knows what. So it was quite complicated. But I did, I did that for a couple of years. But in essence, I've been in education most of my life. But and, and you've also been a, a head of school, um, supporting and, and, and leading education in, in that aspect. And um, you also have several roles, as you mentioned, with the International Baccalaureate. Um, tell us about what you enjoy the most in, in your long-standing career. What has been one of your highlights or real cherishable moments as an educator, Sonia? 
I think actually, if I'm really honest about it, Ruth, I think the things that I enjoy the most are what I'm currently doing because I made a conscious effort to move out of leadership. That was my, I hate to say it, that was my least favourite task. And I know there are many people who work in leadership roles and it's their favourite task. Um, so for me, I get the greatest amount of pleasure and satisfaction in supporting and helping schools and individuals in education. And I've also done that in business as well. So I think um, possibly working with problem solving is something that I like very much. And, and I have first-hand experience of seeing Sonia in action on maybe three or four school evaluations. Our last one was in Sweden. <laughs> where we had an amazing team uh, and we also lost sadly a, a great dear friend and colleague um, uh, during that visit day Jones who you and I took away so much in, in terms of learning how to how to do our craft um, so that's wonderful now if we think about the the concept of identity and if we think about exploring our personal cultural and professional identity what what do you feel sort of comprises who you are today well in a nutshell i think it's everything that makes sonia erickson sonia erickson or rizwan khan rizwan khan but i guess you want a bit more detail than that <laughs> um i think that's a very complex uh, thing, question. I think we could spend the next six months discussing identity. <laughs> but for me, I think it's um, a combination of many different things. Mm. Language or the languages that you speak make up who you are. Your name, I think, is very important. That's why I always, I, I never like when people change their name. And having said that, my family is name changer. So, um, but I do think it's part of your identity. I think your religion is part of your identity. I think the environment that you're born into um, creates who you are. The professions of your parents, the education of your parents, I definitely think affects who you are as you grow up. The education that you have in school, the type of school you have the opportunity or don't have the opportunity to go to, and post-school education, if you have the opportunity to attend that. Having said that, I do know that tertiary education now provides multiple opportunities to people, which it didn't when I was growing Absolutely. up. Absolutely. But in my day and age, um, that was definitely something that was very uh, important to have. And I think your life experience, where you live, who you live with, who you share your life with, and your work experience, and of course your age, because over time, things mellow an awful lot. So even though you have all those features that affect you, it affects you in a different way when you're 30 mm. plus, as opposed to 40 plus, 50 plus, 60 plus, 70 plus. That's my, my so take on it as well. Hearing hearing that, I mean, it's it's really incredible to hear how you know, sometimes our identity also evolves and changes. Is it, is it one of those things that is concrete and fixed or, you know, is it one of those things that evolves? And I think the latter is, is something that I've been exploring myself a little bit as well. One of the primary questions I used to get asked when I was working in, and living in Dubai was, Riz, where are you from? 
And sometimes it's a really difficult question to, to answer because I was not born in England. I was born in Islamabad, the capital of Pakistan. And I moved over to England when I was six weeks old. And, you know, majority of my education is here in England, uh, primary, secondary, uh, three different universities. And then my adventure started in international education in Dubai and then to Tbilisi in Georgia, now back to the UK. And who knows where tomorrow? So, mm. uh, you know, it's it's that idea of a third culture kid, I somehow connect with quite a bit. Well, it's interesting that you should say that, isn't it? Because I was, before we started this conversation, I was thinking about how I have a British passport, but I was wondering just how British am I? Yes, I speak the language, and um, but I haven't lived, I've lived more of my life outside of the UK than I have in the UK. And I sometimes think about, you know, friends that will go down the pub on a Friday night or they'll meet somewhere collectively in houses and whatever. And the types of conversations that they would be having. And I would be thinking to myself, I wonder how engaged I would be able to be in a typical conversation that would take place on a you know, Friday evening. I think I'd be more of a listener. Mm. Than speaker. It's really interesting you mentioned that, Sunny, because when I came back from Dubai, nearly seven years I was out there, and coming back to the UK was a huge culture shock. Mm. You know, the roads, the society, the individuals, the conversation, the mindset. You know, yes. when, when we live and work in, in an international framework, we, we get to see how how beautiful the world is and how there are some incredible people in the world who one may not have an opportunity to connect with in our hometowns and home villages. So I think broadening horizons is, is so important when we're thinking about identity because it's evolving and it's constantly changing. And the more, as you mentioned, we experience life in personal scenarios and professional scenarios, I think that adds to our you know, our concept of identity. Um, the podcast title is Leading and Managing in Challenging Times. And what a challenging time we have been enduring through pandemic times, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What has been your take and your reflection during, during this moment in, in history? Mixed, actually. I think, I think some people have uh, hidden behind the excuse of, of the pandemic. And I'm afraid I don't like Hydus. Um, I think some people have done an okay job and performance, but there are people who've really taken it, a bit like taking the ball by the horns and tried to make the most and seen it as an opportunity. And perhaps as I'm, I think as a person, I'm an optimist. Onwards and upwards is a phrase that often comes into my mind um, when I'm faced with a challenge. Um, which I know some people can find very irritating and they don't like that. But I do think that, yes, times are very challenging. Mm. We know that there are businesses, there are schools, there are institutions who've had dramatic loss of workers who maybe didn't have to work before, maybe they were coming up to retirement, they decided they'd take early retirement or for whatever reasons have left the workplace. And there are voids in, in a lot of workplaces. But it's now interesting when you read 
about challenges facing workplaces that one of the greatest challenges is to get workers mm. back into the workplace because they realize that given the opportunity to work at home but some save a lot of money <laughs> well they could they could save money but they could also work more effectively because mm. they were more focused at home. Now, of course, there are some people who just can't work at home because they've got three kids, five dogs and six cats all over, climbing all over the place. And a husband who just keeps wanting, coming in and wants jam tarts and cups of tea or whatever the reasons may be. Okay. But, you know, I think that there are definitely challenges that have faced people during the pandemic mm. but i think in some instances people have been a little naughty mm. to have hidden behind some of them a little more than they needed to absolutely and and they don't um, play anything but that's just my take mm, mm. and 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 i think um you know we both have been supporting schools uh, in virtual scenarios doing school evaluations behind the screen and one thing that really strikes out in a lot of the schools that I've seen anecdotally is the resilience demonstrated by the educational community worldwide. Um, resilience in terms of, you know, having the grit to deal with fast, fast changing scenarios, dealing with face to face and then going to the unknown remote and online teaching and then back to face to face so mm -hmm. it's been a really dotty time and if we step back and if we step out what would you say are some of the successes of leading in a school in a business in an organization through some of the tricky challenging times that we've experienced recently such as pandemic i think those leaders that are good listeners I think have had, um, when they've been working on screen and they've been leading developments either in their business or their school or their organisation, institution, I think if they've been good at listening to people, because one thing that you have to do when you're sat in front of a screen, by virtue of the fact that there's nothing else to do, let's face it, there are no other distractions, no. Um, you have to listen. So if you're a good listener, you have probably been able to deal with some of the challenges quite well. If, on the other hand, you are a, a tactile person and you need the um, association of a group or, you know, your flock, I guess you would have been more challenged because, you know, you've had to sit on a chair for many more hours than you would have done normally if you'd been at your place of work. So um, I think also they probably had to be more available at unusual times of day and maybe even across the weekend. I know I have in my job, people have contacted me outside of your typical office hours and I have made myself available because I think people have been a little bit more needy and perhaps less patient to wait for a response you know because everything is online and you know there's only so so much patience that you have at the end of a day when you're working you're dealing with a binary system most of the day so when you've got the opportunity to have somebody else on the end of 
So Sonia, do you have um, do you have like a, a real funny moment that you've witnessed as you've been doing work in an online scenario? Has something just jumped out across the screen, or you've seen one of those things where you've found it really difficult to to resist laughing out loud? Well, yes, because I've had somebody actually who forgot that they were in their pajamas. Oh, gosh, how can you forget what you're wearing? Well, I, I, let's say I use the word forget as a kind of like forgiveness. Um, but that was, for me, that was, it was almost impossible not to laugh, to think that they had not thought about that. Um, that, you know, here we are in a professional meeting and they've got their gym jams on and actually was also sat on the sofa. That doesn't mean that what they were doing was didn't contribute to, to the occasion. Mm. It did, the questions were on the spot, but I felt that the dress code and the, the presence was, didn't quite meet the, um, the occasion. And for me, as you probably know, that was a very difficult thing not to laugh. Mm. One of the advantages of working on screen is that if you do lose the plot, you can actually turn your video off, which <laughs> you can't do in reality. I mean, With I don't know about you, Sonia, but um, working for long hours behind the screen, I feel is taking much more cognitive energy. And the idea of losing the plot is actually a reality behind the screen. Of course it is, you know. And let's not forget that some of us have worked when we've got COVID mm. and your brain is a little foggier. So you have to have a strategy. And when you sometimes look around your office and you discover that you've got all these little notes stuck on your wall at kind of like eye level so that you don't lose the plot but nobody knows about that mm. and you might just suddenly sit back in your chair and think you've got the instructions for the conclusion meeting overview sections that you'll share then you've got a ruler under the questions that you potentially <laughs> may ask so you don't lose your welcome to the life of school evaluators yeah. you've got lots of post-it notes on your wall stuck up with tape because after a while they fall down but nobody realizes that you know so we all have our challenges mm. working virtually so when we do get back to face-to-face -to -face work. I think it will be difficult to adapt to that as well. I don't think we'll all be going back working face-to-face -face, and that won't be challenging mm -hmm. because we've got very used to working virtually. Absolutely. And, and um, something that I share often in, in workshops that I'm leading for heads of school and principals is I feel that the higher up we go in a hierarchy, the more lonelier it gets. Oh, it does. And, and it really shouldn't, and it, it shouldn't be like that because... You know, as, as a leader of a, an organization, a business, a school, yes, you are there, at, you know, at the top of the chain, but that doesn't mean you should isolate yourself. No. Um, so, so what are your thoughts on, on higher, higher up you go, the lonelier it gets? Well, that was one of the things I didn't like about being in a leadership role, because um, especially... I think it, there's two things, there's two, two different aspects here. One is if you come from the outside mm. to join a school, um, that's different than if you seek a position from inside the school and you are promoted because one day you are shoulder to shoulder with your colleagues and they treat you that way. And then the next thing, you are the boss. Mm. And that, I think, in some respects, is harder 
than going into a leadership role with no leadership experience in a new place of work. I think of the two, I know schools like to do that and other institutions like very much to promote from within, but it does create its own set of unique challenges and alienation definitely is one of them. And then I think that the culture that you join and the expectations create another because I'm the sort of person, I, I would hate to go anywhere thinking that I'm the expert. Mm. I am the knowledgeable one. I know everything that there is to know about everything. I like to learn mm. wherever I go and whatever workplace. Now, in some cultures, that's a taboo because mm. you are the top one, you are the top dog, you get the top salary, and all that goes with that as well. And that can sometimes create a very different feeling amongst people you work with and, and it's they also do. coming back to you know what is your philosophy as a leader and 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 I think that's a really important starting point for any leader in any organization whether it's a school a business or an organization is what is your philosophy and to what extent is it shared and understood by everybody because you know people need to understand who we are as individuals as personal individuals and our professional backgrounds because then it's that connection that you know opportunity to relate as well i think that's absolutely the key to it all isn't it but having said that if you have a strong leader that joins um, an institution, let's call it an institution for want of keep going back to schools because I know there are people listening to this that don't work in schools and would never work in a school. So if you join an institution and the in thing these days is to have a vision, to have a mission, to have a strategy. We hear these words banded around wherever we work. Um, and so the question to yourself is, are you going to bring, is that what you've sold yourself with to get the job? Have you sold your vision? Have you sold your mission? Have you sold your strategy? Or have you sold yourself as having the skill to be able to lead a team, lead a group or groups of people, no matter how few, no matter how large that group may be, and that you've got the skills to be able to do that. Now, personally, I favour the latter, because I think if you are going to be successful, the people that you are going to be working with need to be part of building that vision, Absolutely. that mission, that strategy. Now, I know there are incredible numbers of successful business people who have sold the vision, sold the mission, sold the concept, and they have gone in and they have created multi-billion dollar successful businesses, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Google, whether it's Apple, you know, they've come up with that spark. So that's the argument against that. But from my own personal experience, and mine is within school with a limited amount of experience in business, even in business, I found that if everyone feels they're part of the wheel, the wheel goes forward much more. That easily. is a really wonderful pearl and a reflection right there in terms of leading, not only in difficult times, but in any times, is to have others to have voice and input into the vision, into the strategy, into the plan, so that there is 
more sustainability. You know, if we ask ourselves, why do new initiatives fall flat soon after they've taken off? You know, chances are that it's, you know, as you described, that lack of buy-in, people haven't had an input into the future, what the future might and could and should look like. They haven't had their input into the strategy and how perhaps their strengths could be utilized and positioned in a way that could inform next steps in the strategy. So I think that's a really, you know, incredible top tip and a, and a pearl and a reflection point for, for many of our listeners. Um, I think the other side of this is for anybody who is leading and, and managing is where do you find that balance between leadership and management? Because schools, for example, are extremely busy places. There is, you know, a parent knocking on the door, a child's, you know, has got this need and a teacher has just fallen sick. So there's so many factors that contribute to our actions on a day-to-day -day basis. But if we step back again and ask ourselves, how much time do we spend every day on the leadership, the vision, the mission, the strategy, et cetera, and the day-to-day -day running? I know well, when I first started as a, as a young leader, as a head of languages, you know, I felt I was doing much more of the groundwork, the running, the day-to-day. And often the strategy, the mission, the vision, the where we're going tomorrow was, you know, a tail end. It was left behind kind of thing. Mm. I absolutely agree. And I'm going to read you something which I have stuck on my wall now, which is always on my wall. And it was when I was working in a, in a small school and I had gone off on, you know, yet another day-to-day -day challenge. And when I came back, my, I suppose, admin support person had put the following on my desk. And it said, I'm lost. I've gone to look for myself. If I return before I get back, please ask me to wait. And I think that typified very much how one can get lost in all the day-to-day. -day. And the noise. Yeah, the hub and the bub of uh, what happens in any workplace and how it you get sucked into it. It's a bit like a vacuum cleaner. Mm. You can get sucked into that. And I think a mistake that many leaders make is that they think that they have to be the problem solver of so many problems, which if they actually got to know the people that they work with a little better, if they took that time to get to know people, that they could so easily request who would like to be delegated tasks within an institution. Mm. And then if you ask that question, it also gives you the ability and the possibility to sort out those that might make a mountain out of a molehill and might not be very good at solving certain tasks. In other words, you might have even more problems and more challenges on your plate, you know, that those sort of people exist in, in every place of work. But you could kind of like sort people out as to who can comfortably and confidently take care of things so that you don't feel you've got to have quite as many things on your plate. Of course, there are some things which you can't delegate as a head of school, as a director, as a CEO, whatever your, your, your role is. But there are many things that we do which could so easily be delegated. And sometimes I think leaders can be afraid 
to delegate. And I don't think- I think, think um, you're, you're certainly hitting on something. And, you know, lots of organizations have a model of, you know, what we see as distributed leadership, where they allocate formal positions of responsibility and roles um to to distribute that responsibility and to alleviate you know the strain on, on a single individual kind of thing but i also wonder you know what is the the caution with distributed leadership because if we are putting the wrong people in those positions of distributed leadership we could be distributing incompetence too yeah well i think that's something as i just said you have to sort through your people who either would like to have some additional responsibility or you feel are capable of uh, carrying that additional responsibility. Because what you can't do is water yourself down so much that who's the leader in the school or who's the leader in the office or who's the leader of the company, that you can't do. But I do know that it is possible to find a balance and I think it is about balance and using, not using, but should we say, offering opportunities to people who would like to be offered opportunities and mentoring them along the way. Because that, it's one thing of doing the task yourself, but if you are a good mentor to people, that's also part of being a good leader. So knowing who to support when and how. And it's not just professional development. It's not just education because that's the other pathway that many leaders go down oh if they're going to do that they need that education not a lot need that education what they do need is a role model mm. so you know walking at the side of you walking with you as you do a task to see how it can be done successfully and maybe giving you input as you're actually doing that task so that you're dialoguing with that person, making them feel already, not that you've transferred that responsibility directly, but that you're listening to them. And it goes back to being a good listener, a good communicator, you know, getting them engaged in the right way so that when they're ready to fly the nest, you know, that you've got that person competently experienced to do that task. That and, and, and there goes another pearl and another reflection is, as leaders, our job is not only to lead the individuals in, in the organizations, but also to, to think about succession planning and also yeah. to think about, you know, how am I building other leaders? Because I feel if as a leader of, a school, a business, an organization, if you're not building many leaders, then, you know, how are we going to build a world with competent leaders? You're not going to be able to, are you? And I think, I think it goes back to something that we took up earlier on, and that was about your vision for your workplace. And, and somebody said to me, well, you know, your vision is what you dream, but the actions are the things that you do working towards your vision, your dream. And I think there are many actions in many workplaces that if you want buy-in from people, you have to get other people involved in those actions. You, can, you could be the initiator mm. of the idea behind the action, 
but you need to you need the expertise of other people in a place of work because you're not the expert on everything. Well, well this is it. I mean, um, as as a leader, I, I absolutely love and I value non-conformity. I don't want to be sitting around a table with people who are going to agree with every single word and idea, because then how are you coming up with the best ideas and the best notions if everybody around the table is disagreeing? And sometimes, you know, leaders have a strategy of recruitment in who they look for, in the traits, in the values, in the experience, so that they can have that breadth of perspectives around the table. I think that's a great strength of any workplace. You need variety. And I think as a leader as well, one of the things that you've got to be prepared for is to be criticised because out of critique, and that, you know, the word criticism, people sometimes have lots of negative thoughts about that. Why does it always have to be soul-destroying mm. to be criticised? It can be, of course it can be, but it doesn't have to be. Because I think it was Aristotle that said, if you don't want uh, to be criticised, you can't do anything, you can't say anything, you can't be anything. Right. So if you want to get some good ideas going, often you can throw out, uh, it's a bit like being a flamethrower. You know, if you throw out a flame, some of the things that you get back, you know, the hoses that come in to douse that flame will be far better ideas than what you've actually thrown out yourself. And it's also a strategy that you can use when you think, mm, I don't really think that I have some really good ideas about how I could develop A, B or C in the context of my where I'm working. So what about if I just at the next meeting throw this out, obviously with a connection to where you want to get to eventually, some of the ideas that you can get back can be truly amazing. It really, really can. But, but Sonny, this is another, I feel, a reflection and a pearl is, as leaders, to what extent do we model and demonstrate vulnerability? I don't because think we do sometimes. Do that sends such a powerful message to our communities of, you know, it's okay to have an idea and it's okay for that idea to fall flat initially. initially. I think it goes back to how we develop a culture for risk-taking where we work. And that takes time to develop. So as a, as a person who might be going new to a place of work, I think that you would perhaps want to share that you want that as part of the end goal in the community in where you're working. It is all right to try something. It is all right to try and fail. It is all right to be a risk taker, but you'd have to do that carefully because if you had 50 plus people working in your organization and all of a sudden those 50 people think, oh, I can try out my idea now. And you had 50 different ideas coming through the door on a Monday morning at nine o'clock. I don't think you'd like that either as the, you know, the person in charge of a workplace. So I think how you develop a culture of risk-taking. In fact, I think it was you, Riz, that we were on a school visit together. And, or it could have been, um, I think it might have been you actually, who said, how do you feel your community supports a culture of risk? That quite possibly could have been me. Because that's like one of your questions. And I thought, well, that's rather a brave question. 
because it, it needs to be answered by somebody with their experience of the workplace yeah, yeah. in order to know how has this come about? How does how do the leaders in, in this school or how do the leaders in the office uh, support that? Because some places it's made quite clear to you that if that you, is not the norm. Is it. You know, if you make a mistake, you will be reprimand, reprimanded. Oh, yes, yes. So, you know, your chances have gone forever. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, really leading to a very toxic, I think, um, working environment. But coming back to something you mentioned earlier on about the cultural aspects and the cultural views of leadership are very different culture to culture, as we have seen and experienced, you know, a leadership team in um, the United Kingdom, in the Americas, they perceive, for example, leadership to be a much more collaborative, distributed sort of mm. method. Whereas I feel schools in, in different parts of the world, for example, where I worked in Dubai um, and in other parts of the world in the Middle East, it's very top heavy, mm. you know, where it's the, the person right at the top is providing commands and everybody else just follows and they don't question. And, and if we step back again and think, which one of those methods is conducive to an organization growing and not being constrained and crushed? I think that latter part is really something that we all need to be thinking about across our industries and organizations is, you know, to what extent are we growing other leaders? To what extent are we building that distributed capacity? To what extent are we fostering collaboration? And this is a, another buzzword, isn't it, Sonia? Collaboration. Collaboration, oh, oh yes. We love to collaborate. We've seen leaders who are like, I'm a collaborator. And you're like, hmm. <laughs> Uh, I think it goes, you know, it does go back to culture yet again. It goes back to the culture of the person who's appointed to the new job in the new organization, the baggage that they bring with them, the learning that they do prior to joining the organization, the knowledge they have of the context. Because um, I grew up in the UK, and when I first moved to Scandinavia, I became aware on day three that the organizational platform, the leadership platform is almost square. That, you know, and I learned that in the bank of all places to learn it, you know, because having come from the UK where you went to your little person this, this is years ago because it's no longer the case now, but you went to your little person and your conversation was utterly private and nobody knew your business. I walked into a bank in Scandinavia. It looked more like a supermarket than the bank. I was, I, I was shocked because, you know, wow, you know, am I really going to have a conversation about my private, you know, my money where everybody can hear it, you know, and that, that took me a while to get used to. I did discover that they did have some private rooms. So when you got really down to the private type of conversation, you, it was private. But again, if you think about, you know, where you've worked in Dubai and you sit in the middle of Sweden, the cultures are just so very different. I mean, I've been into schools in the Middle East and into different countries in Europe uh, and, and you, 
it's like, you know, day and night. So incredibly different. And of course, I, I think that's that is something that really makes our our job a little bit challenging because we have to keep a very open mind. We can't come with our fixed views on how a school or an organization should be run. Yes, we have benchmarks and standards of how we expect schools to implement programs with fidelity and integrity, but you know, we can't be there to impose and say, this is the only way you should do it because that's how it is in my last school. Exactly. And I think that's very important. And it goes back to the qualities, I guess, the identity of the person, the qualities that they have in themselves as to how successfully or unsuccessfully they will actually be a leader in a place of work. If they're unable to take in the values, the context of the, the, the organisation that they're meeting, that they're hoping to work with, that they have newly become part of, they will not be a successful leader, no matter what level of skill they've got, no matter what level of education, because they will be there and the institution that they're working with will be there and the two will not, the paths will not cross. And I think sometimes that is the case with leaders in places of work, that there is a disconnect between the leaders, the leadership group and the working group. And when you go into a place of work and you see that, it is very, very difficult to take the same group of leaders. I, I, I really agree with that. And, and, and this is something I've seen in, you know, in, in lots of organisation in schools. And I, I also worked in the police force here in England, which, again, is a very hierarchical, structural sort of um, organisation to, to sort of to work in and, and to be with. But coming back down to, you know, the idea of, leading and managing in some of the most difficult and traumatic and challenging times. I really feel, and I think that leadership in the 21st century is much more people orientated oh. and much more sort of interconnected where the hierarchical structure is, is, it's important to have that because people I think need to know where the book stops. Oh yes, uh, definitely. But, you know, I think to get that balance between empowerment, encouragement, motivation, building, it's such a tricky thing to do. I mean, where do you start as a leader coming into a highly established organization or a highly established school or a young school that is quite premature? How do you get that balance between, you know, motivation and taking the organization forward and dealing with the, the views of leader it's a very complex thing what is the one piece of skill or advice or mindset that any leader needs to have regardless of how successful how established an organization is well if you take too long it's obvious in any, any new place of work, you have to get to know your community. But if you take too long, you run the risk of the mindset developing that either, oh, he or she doesn't know what she's doing, mm. you know, uh, or doesn't know what to do. But I do think getting to know the organisation that you've joined is extremely important. And I think there are certain things that you have to show that you can do. And I presume rightly or wrongly, if you are lucky enough 
to obtain a leadership position that you are able to think, you're able to communicate. If you look at some of the world leaders in today and age, this day right. and age, well, let's just say in a world outside of politics, mm -hmm. okay, in a world outside of politics, I would hope that as a leader, you were a thinker. I would hope that you're a good communicator. I would hope that you have the ability to listen and to take advice. I would hope that you are inspirational, but that you're not so over the top that you put people off. Again, think about the community that you join. Don't be so over the top that you put people off and don't be so low key that people don't know whether you're in the room or not. But I do think you have to be inspirational of others. I think you have to show that you're able to be caring. Because if you can't care for people that you work with on a daily basis, mm. you shouldn't be a leader. I should have so you that. So caring that you're in tears every time somebody comes knocking on the door and tells you that their cat's died, their dog's right. died, their uncle auntie. Compassion. Auntie. You know, yeah, compassionate. you have to be compassionate. So I think there are many qualities and it's fairly easy to show those qualities when you meet with people. And I think you need to be able to show those qualities in both formal and informal settings. So in other words, you need to be able to go in the staff room or the work room, the break room, the tea room, the coffee room and have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee with the ordinary people. Sometimes yeah. you, you discover so much about an organization in some of these golden corridor conversations. Yeah, of course you do. And you need to be able to show that, you know, you, you don't just sit in your little ivory tower. Mm. On the other hand, you also need to be able to show an appreciation for that um, collegiate place as well, where people need to be without the boss in there so you can't be in there every day but at the same breath you need to be it, it, you need to be in there so it's a normal occurrence when you do go in it's the interesting to mention this, yeah. but i think people need to have a place where they can blast off and criticize you and blow off steam mm -hmm. as well with others so, so really really important things that you, you're highlighting and, and mentioning you know as leaders we're not you know, being liked, everybody wants to be liked, right? Mm -hmm. But we can't be driven by public perceptions or mm -hmm. perceptions of our colleagues because then our intention is not in the right place. It isn't. It's like, you know, we have to be able, it goes back to what I said a little while ago, we have to be able to take critique. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we are nobody. Mm -hmm. You know, if we do nothing, if we say nothing, we are nobody, we are nothing. In other words, we're invisible. And that you can't be as a leader in your place of work. So I think your skin has to be slightly thicker to take that critique so that you don't, uh, it doesn't create stress um, inside of you, but that you're not so nonchalant that you don't think, hmm, I wonder why I heard that or why is this happening? To ask yourself the question why, I think is a very good question to ask yourself as a leader. Why did this happen? How can I avoid that sort of thing happening again if something goes, you know, pear-shaped? And I think it's, I think you can expect as a leader, you can expect that 
your journey, it's like life. Some parts of your life are easier than others and some parts of the leadership journey, is, uh, they're going to be easier than others. So um, timing is everything as well. What you plan as a leader is also very important. When you plan what you do, there are some things which will be fixed in stone. If you work in a company where your tax return has to be in at a certain time of year, that's not arbitrary. Examinations can't be moved around. Summer vacations and periods of non-work are often non-negotiable features, but there are several things which are negotiable in workplaces. And sometimes I ask myself a question, I wonder why they plan that for now when they've got A, B, C, D, and E. So, you know, I think perhaps that's to do with your strategy, your vision, having um, short-term goals and long-term goals and being aware of a workplace timeline over a period of time. And, and I guess also, that can go back to, to thinking in an old-fashioned way of actually having a visible timeline because you may have made a mistake when planning a timeline. And if it's in a, and if it's in a coffee room, for example, and everybody's it's accessible to everybody, and somebody thinks, oh, we can't possibly be having that then. Oh, I better go and knock on his or her door. And, and you know, there are so many things that we can do so easily. Just because we are in the 21st century doesn't mean that some of the tools from the past can't be used and used effectively. I, I think uh, golden, golden. Sometimes it's um, <clears throat> we have to use some of the key aspects of our foundations and even if it is a pen and paper and absolutely put to a side you know yeah. it's fine um something else that just cropped to mind as you were sharing that was the idea of leadership here and now being of service to others oh yes you know as as leaders you know are we really looking for people to follow us or are we there to build an environment or conditions for others to succeed. Another, you know, debate question is to what extent in our leadership roles, responsibilities in our day to day, how much do we serve others? Because there's so much wisdom that can be learned from giving back to others. Well, there are many people who spend their life giving talks and um, attending conferences. And one of the first things that they will say about leadership is that leadership is a service. Mm. And for those people who are lucky enough to serve, we should never lose sight of the customer that we are serving. And if you're in a school, the most important customers that you're serving are your students, because without your students, you haven't got a job. If you're in industry of any sort, then it's the customer who's buying the product. And I think in this day and age, we are very guilty of losing sight of the customer for whom we are providing the service. And I think that's something we were reminded all of us with any form of British background about a certain lady who recently celebrated 70 years of service to a nation of people mm -hmm. and you know people can ridicule that person big shout out to queen elizabeth if she's watching by the way or yes yes <laughs> um you know so I highly um, doubt. People don't, don't like don't like 
that that idea of service mm. but so we are serving people in any form of leadership role whether you're um, leading a veterinary uh, practice whether you're leading a doctor's practice whether you're a ceo director of a hospital whatever you might be never lose sight of the customer and i think a lot of criticism of leadership and leaders today is made because we do not feel that they take note of us as the customer. And sometimes it's, you know, rolling your sleeves up and getting stuck in on the ground. You know, as an example, I was um, a middle school head in Tbilisi, Georgia, and I refused to give up teaching a class because, mm. you know, I want to be connected to the students are priority in, in, in schools or our customer in any other organization, but also I want to be able to model what I'm sharing. And, and I think the idea of modeling is so underestimated. In our last episode, we had um, the guest talk about how parents could be taking opportunities to model correct behaviors and mannerisms and character in the home. And that I think is so transferable to anybody in a role of responsibility is, you know, how are you modeling the expectations that you're sharing for others? I think that's a very important point. Two things here is, first of all, when I worked in any form of leadership role, whether it was middle leadership, lower, middle, top, call it whatever you want, I never, ever, ever gave up the role of being a teacher. Mm. I always taught because I felt if I was making decisions that were ultimately going to affect the students, I needed to know what it was like in the classroom. And when I talk about teaching, I also talk about working in nursery school, end of the school as well, not just in the middle years program or in the DP or the primary years program throughout. And then the other thing is, what I found interesting is I learned a lot coming, living and spending several years working in Sweden. I learned a lot about IKEA and the way they develop management and all levels of management in IKEA. And from the moment that you take on any form of managerial role in IKEA, you have to spend one week per year working in any IKEA anywhere in the world. So, for example, if you have a fa if your family is from Japan, but you're working in Europe and you're going to Japan on your vacation, then you can go work in any IKEA store in Japan. So anywhere in the world, you do this week of work. And in when I was working in Sweden, it was amazing to see the number of parents, all of whom were managers, and they were working out of Sweden, the home of IKEA in Elmholt as their base, just uh, at the cash desk, helping customer service, helping customers put things on the conveyor belt, you know, helping you out with your trolley. Incredible. So powerful. And you remind me of um, a documentary I watched, um, Frontier Airlines, in the I think it's a US-based airline. And the CEO, he took a very conscious effort to spend, I think it was a week undercover, doing the roles of his staff so he was a baggage handler he was mm -hmm. dealing with check-in he was dealing with customer related challenges and issues he walked away from that experience with insights about his business that you just 
cannot get when you're in an office yeah. or behind a screen. And also, I remember when I was um, coordinating um, a middle school in Dubai, um, I had uh, an initiative where we had shadow a student. So for a full week, I was shadowing for the whole day different groups of students. So students with inclusion needs, students who are highly able, um, students who have challenges and X, Y, Z. And again, we walk away with so much insight into our organization when we see our organizations from a different lens. We, we do. And it takes me back, I guess, to one of my core principles, one of my core values. And it was always said to me by my father. And my father always said, never ask anyone to do something that you would not do yourself. And I guess if you think about... I have a little flashback of a, a lockdown party that happened when it shouldn't here in England. Yeah, but I think if you think about any place of work, from the person who cleans the bathrooms mm. to the person who cleans the your desk your office to the person who's providing the support for a, a, um, a disabled worker to um, your worker to your middle level management to your upper senior level management always remember you know from you wouldn't be where you are without mm. the people who actually do the everyday jobs that probably you never think about. One of the nicest things I ever remember from a school I worked in when we had, when I actually left the school, I invited, we had a dedicated cleaner to our school and we had poached her from a professional cleaning company and we had secured her a job and she was such a lovely 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 lady always smiling and yet you know she really was doing the same job every single day and i invited her to uh my leaving do and she wasn't going to come and i got quite angry with her and i said you know i will cancel it if you don't come because you're the most important person at the, um, at the party and she said how can that be so I said well you know the health and safety laws would not allow us to operate if you didn't do your job properly mm. and you do your job fabulously so I would like you to come and celebrate you know this day with me and she she actually came she didn't stay for that long and then I remember going to a school in Beirut and they had um oh several layers of leadership in the school and they had two Christmas get-togethers or end-of-term get-togethers. One for, was for the teachers, okay, and that took place at a certain time, but then from a certain time onwards it was for all the, it was a group of schools and it was for all the other workers in the school. And we had an invitation to go to both, it, you know, we'd been visiting and it was our, we were leaving late in the night, you know, flights out of Dubai didn't go, or flights out of Beirut didn't go until like two, three, four o'clock in the morning. So we actually chose to sleep through the posh party and we joined <laughs> the so-called workers party and we had such a good party, we nearly all missed our flights. <laughs> 
But you know, I, you, what you model as a leader yeah. Yeah. is very, very important. Yeah, and, and I think it's, you know, it comes down to also, you know, our moral compass. Absence of a moral compass or a dissolved or diluted moral compass can be toxic because then it impacts the decisions, the choices, the actions, behaviors, etc., of ourselves and and also um, what we tolerate in in our uh, ways of of work and in in our personal and professional beings. Um, so our moral compass is, I, I think, another part of you know a leader's traits and abilities in this day and age is to have a strong sense of awareness of who you are your strengths your opportunities and to really acknowledge those because as you mentioned right early on as leaders we are not the experts in everything and anything we have to be able to know where our where our strengths are and where our weaknesses or gaps might be so that we can do something with that information exactly and i think it goes back to this premise that uh, bad leaders care about who's right mm. but good leaders care about what's actually right mm. and there's a big difference there isn't there and, it's not about know, being right it's about being righteous exactly so i think that you know again that that reaffirms that point of moral compass and again there are going to be times when you're in a leadership role, when you are lonely, because when you get together at um, whether it's an office party or whether it's a, an end of term, an end of year party, in some cultures, there are only so many types of behavior that's acceptable for us, for a leader to, to show at a, a party or of any description so you've always got to be controlled mm. when you're with your working group because if you start you know standing on the table dancing on the table and all that sort of thing that isn't really what some people from some cultural backgrounds would associate with being a good leader mm. even if you're not in your workplace you know even if you are somewhere where everyone's letting their hair down so um... I think you're absolutely right in having that awareness, you know, as, as a leader, whether you see this or not, you know, people do look up to us as, as role models, as in, inspirations. And, you know, they might make their own perceptions and judgments on our on our actions or inactions as well. Yeah. Um, because I think you have to trust your leader as well, you know, to get the best out of a team, out of a group of people. Trust has definitely got to be there. And I'm wondering how you would trust someone who you feel is not showing you the right parts of their moral compass mm. when you are socializing with them. So I guess, you know, there will be certain things in school that you won't be part of mm. as a leader or in an institution of any sort and certain things you will be part of. And I think that's it comes with the territory. Absolutely. And um, Sonia, as we think about summarizing and wrapping up, we have a common goal through our day job in international education to kind of build a better, more peaceful world through education. If we are going to see, and this is a question I ask every guest, 
if we are going to see a better tomorrow, in your experience, in your perspective, what could and should be priorities at this time? If we're going to see a better tomorrow, if we're going to see a better tomorrow, well, I think we, what is a better tomorrow? Because in some people's eyes, a better tomorrow may be that there's less gunfire tonight than there was last night. Mm. So I think that's again, very contextualized. Um, and people's principles vary from culture to culture, from country to country. I think we all must have hope though that there can be a better tomorrow than today. So I think hope, you know, I hate to go back to the three virtues, faith, hope, and love, yeah. but those are fundamental. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever your today is like, or your tomorrow is like, or your tomorrow, uh, tomorrow may be, or your yesterday was, where, you know, whether you're in peaceful times or war-torn times, whether you're leading an organization in, in a country that's being torn to pieces, a country that's, you know, experiencing famine, all the things that we know go on globally. If you do have hope and faith and love, I think that can help you achieve within the context that you are, the vision that you have, linked to your circumstances for a better tomorrow, but also understand that most plans don't go according to plan. And, and that last bit is, you know, I, I think is story of my life sometimes. Um, mm. You know, we have our own grand plans of our future, of our tomorrow, of our strategy, of our action plans. And when those plans don't go to plan, it's almost like we freeze, mm. you know, you know, this was my plan. And, it, you know, it's okay for plans not to go as planned because sometimes we have to leave, you know, the uncontrollable to somebody who does have control and far better, perhaps wisdom, knowledge and insight than we might do. So I, I love those three elements of faith, hope, and love, because if we all practiced, modeled, and exercised that on our daily, in our roles in schools, organizations, whether you're a formal leader or an informal leader without a title, I think over time, we would most significantly see a huge mindset shift in what it means to lead and what it means to follow. And I, I think that is a real gem of leading and managing in challenging and difficult times, hope, faith, and love. And I have to share this with everybody who's listening and watching that this is an unstructured, unscripted conversation. And mm. I love how through the open reflection, open dialogue and discussion, we've been able to draw out some really amazing pearls of reflection of wisdom for individuals in schools, across organizations and industries to think about, and most significantly, to reflect. And this is something that you and I encourage many leaders in our day job. And also on my radio shows every Sunday, I encourage people to hit the brakes and to reflect. 
And, and Sonia, in your experience, we all know that life sometimes can be a little bit of a motorway or a highway, but there is so much power in hitting the bricks to stop, to pause, and to reflect. What is your view on the power of reflection, Sonia? Oh, well, I love reflecting. I probably spend too much time reflecting because I live near a forest. Mm -hmm. and there is no better place than to go for walks in that forest because there are no distractions and I don't take my telephone. Very irritating for many of my friends and family. But it's, it's a time for me when all devices are left behind and to listen to bird song, mm. to think about, you know, what have I done today? What have I achieved today? And I like to think about less is always more, because if there's been a day when I've actually not done something that I thought I might do, that doesn't mean I had a fast plan, plan to do it, but I might have done it, okay? Um, I think, well, less is always better. It's always more. What did I do instead? What gave me more today than doing what I was thinking or considering doing? So that's something which I think is very important. I don't think enough people reflect today because I think they're too busy with their smart devices and other distractions. There was a world before devices. I know, um, but um, I do say it, if something, there's one thing that I have to share that really irritates me, and that is when you're out in nature and thinking, you know, reflecting, and you see somebody who is either riding a bicycle or jogging with earphones on, that they have to be connected like 24-7. They have no idea that you're either on the path at the back of them, usually, you know, and I just think, why? Mm. Why can't you just take a break? Give your ears. I, I think um, this, it's a really important question. And I think this is something also as in schools, in our homes, in our community, as parents, as, as parents of young people, is, you know, what message are we sending them around safe usage of devices? Because, you know, you and I have seen I've seen in my own, you know, observations firsthand that people spend far more time with their devices nowadays than they do with their husbands, wives and children. Of course they do. And think about the leader, yeah. right? Because we're, we're talking about leadership, but think about the leader who comes to lead a meeting mm. and he or she is looking at the telephone mm. constantly. What sort of a message is that sending out to your team members? What sort of team building exercise is that to think that your telephone is worth more looks than the people that you're actually addressing and just just being present in the moment just you know listening giving your hundred percent um and we all have distractions we all have internal and in external distractions and pressures and and worries but something you mentioned earlier on is as leaders we have to regulate regulate our emotions our thoughts and i don't know if i have a tip around regulation but you know for me it's um faith is an, a really important regulator for me in helping me to do sometimes a factory reset mm -hmm. 
you know, what is priority, what is a moral compass, etc, etc. So I, I think reflection paired with having hope and faith and love, these are some amazing, amazing pearls. Now, for anybody who's listening, viewing and watching, somebody who is a highly experienced leader, or on the other side, somebody who's just entering a role or a position of leadership, what are your top two or three pieces of, of advice? Be sure in the strategy that you develop for your new workplace as a leader, that people who are in that workplace are fully engaged in building and developing that strategy. You'll, I believe myself from experience that you will have more successes in doing that than challenges. So I think that's very important. I have an understanding that most plans don't go to plan. Mm. You know, don't be surprised by that. I think also expect to have criticism. Um, but if you're open to critique, then that really should come as advice and not criticism. I think so, to be open-minded. I think to have a vision of yourself as a thinking person and working in a community where you want to build a thinking mindset. Celebrating when people become engaged and involved in what you do, but make sure that you don't go over the top because those people that don't come forward and offer pearls of wisdom, then might feel kind of like pushed or brushed aside. So you have to be careful how you do that. So collective praise, I think is very, very important, even if two thirds of that workforce aren't worthy of- You remind me of something. Um, I think it's very important that you celebrate yeah. with your community, even if they've you know, hardly taken a step forward or they might have even taken two steps back. Because I think that, but it has to feel genuine, you know, and come do, do, do something that's unexpected. If you're, you know, if your community is used to very formal meetings, come in with a tray of something. I, I, well, do something it doesn't really involve a lot of money, you know, you can really do so much by changing the way that we view team building and team dynamics, mm -hmm. you know, having, you know, a gratitude wall, writing handwritten notes and leaving them in little hiding places for people, leaving yes. a note on somebody's car. The smallest things often make the biggest difference. Yes, absolutely. You know, so little things can certainly mean a lot. So in your, your, should we say, in your strong wish to be successful, don't overlook the small things because, you know, sometimes when you reach for the sun, the moon and the stars, you lose everything in doing so. Mm. So don't lose sight of the customers that you're serving, wherever you're serving them. That's incredible. And, and it reminds me of, a, you know, another notion of the higher up you go, you have to look farther down, but that should be a reminder for us all that when you get to the top, don't forget how far the fall down is too. Exactly. And it's a long way down. Absolutely. Sonia, it has been a real delight to just to connect with you again. Now, the last time we spoke was, um, we were doing a job together. We were finishing off a, a school evaluation report 
And we must have spent at least six or seven hours, but I did not feel a pinch of that time. No, it just whizzed by. Just it just whizzed by. And and you know, that is it's a real honor when we have people, you know, who make life and work such a joy and not something that's onerous. It's a high stakes thing is what we do and there are very very many people who listen watch in similar high stakes roles and positions but we mustn't also forget the joy and that spark in what we do and often it's coming back down to the why did we start in the first place when they're going it's tough come back to the why you know when you've taught a class from hell from horror we've all been there last lesson of the day grade 10 boys right was my horror every week come back to the why why did you start teaching why did you start your role in position of leadership as well but above everything some of the greatest pearls for me and i've learned so much from just hearing your your wisdom your insights on your hope and faith and love these three are for me that the biggest takeaways that i will you know hold and cherish in in my day job in and what we do but also beyond in our social in our personal lives as well mm. you know having that um, love and hope and faith for one another regardless of background regardless of culture regardless of ethnicity of religion i'm a muslim sonia is in a different part of the world follows a different faith but we find commonality I think that's very, very important. And I think whoever you are in any workplace, if you have hope, you take on a new leadership role, the hope that you will be successful, the hope that you will make good decisions, the hope that you will engage people, the hope that you will be inspirational, or you can link virtually every trait of anyone's personality to hope. Mm. You have faith then in what you do and how you do it and who you do it with. And you, you must have some love for the colleagues that you work with. Mm. I defy anybody who can think that they can work in a place of work and not like the company, not love the company of who they work with. Because if that was the case, we would never miss people when they move and work in new places. So, you know, and people have different ways of showing love. Some how how amazing would it be to see... I don't know, a school strategy, an organizational strategy, an industrial strategy based on the word joy, you know, create yes. an action plan or what we know, a program development plan based on joy, because there is so much that could be achieved with that simple, simple notion. How yes. do we build joy? All within um, educational standards. Mm. The students experience joy in their learning. That's a missing standard in our in our. Well, I was just thinking because <laughs> the early years program they have now got play firmly embedded mm -hmm. in the early years of learning, but um, joy. joy is very important to have because across age groups, if, you do, if yeah. you do something because you've got to do it, it often creates stress. But if you do something because you love it, because it's joyful. That intrinsic motivation. Yeah. Mm. That's, that's something to think about, isn't it? How do we encourage joy? We encourage well-being. We encourage students to, I don't know, pursue their personal interests. 
But that would be a great thing for me to read in a school vision or mission. Mm. Certainly in a school's vision that, you know, you're developing um, lifelong learning, but that there is a joy of learning. Because if you, it, it's associated often in schools, sadly, with only reading, a joy of reading. If you develop a joy of reading in students, then the idea is that you will have developed a lifelong reader. But, you know, perhaps a joy of mathematics is something to try, that's important to encourage. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Jo Bowler, who leads some, and she's a pedagogical leader of mathematics. And, but she leads very joyful mathematical sessions with her students. And I think there are many things in life which I think back in my life. And if I had had a joyful leader that led me joyfully and encouraged my own joy, right. instead of getting thrown out of classes when I showed joy, I should have been included in the classes. Yeah. It's, it's just like, you know, the, the, I remember my teacher <laughs> had the greatest subject passion and joy was my English teacher. You know, Vicky Sheridan, who I still, I am in touch with today, um, having that joy for what you do and why you do it, it's like, it's an infection, but a good infection. Yes, but think about the things that you became good at, uh, at school and at university. They were things that brought you great joy great contentment and fulfillment and joy and happiness doing them you didn't study something at university level because you absolutely hated it mm -hmm. so you know think of the type of person the type of personality that you have the traits that you share with others that encourage joy in all aspects of work wherever you are whatever sort of workplace you're leading it should be joyful to go to work we spend at least seven and a half hours a day in a workplace and imagine how that's going to affect you as an individual if there is no joy particularly where we're positioned in moment in time where individuals have lost families friends oh, gosh. you know the isolation if we're adding to that layer of stress of course we're going to see a rise in mental health issues and anxiety and depression. And we're seeing this in schools here in England. I remember seeing a few weeks ago, you know, BBC report, head teachers are worried in England on the rising number of um, mental health issues. Well, I was listening to the radio earlier and it was uh, Virgin Radio. And it was, uh, sorry if that's an advert, but it was an interview with Chris Evans mm -hmm. uh, and he was interviewing Joe Wicks, who mm -hmm. if you, I'm sure yeah, you know who yeah, he is. Yeah. He's the 30-minute uh, evening in Hyde, in, in Hyde Park, he is raising money for charity, for a mental um, awareness charity. And he's holding, he's going to try to break the Guinness Book of Records for the greatest number of people engaged in a workout in Hyde Park tomorrow evening in the UK, starting at 6.30. And he was appealing for additional members. And he's a person who has shown that you can do anything if you enjoy yeah. doing it. Yeah. 
and he's encouraged everybody to be active during COVID times. And he's done it with a great smile on his face and he's turned around and said, you do it at your level. So think about, you know, if you're going to be a leader in the future of making sure wherever you are of bringing joy, not just one day or during one meeting, but each and every day. So that when, because actually during, according to the UN rights, of the individual anyway, we do have a right to go to work and have um, a work environment that is a pleasurable work environment for all of us, for each and every one of us. And, you know, joy is part of pleasure. And how much more productivity and success would come as a result of just focusing on joy? Exactly. We probably wouldn't need to work seven days a week. Right. <laughs> We'd be more productive. <laughs> we could have, right. I, I mean, you know, th there was a trial some time ago of a four day working week in England. And I'm really curious to know how that went. And um, I know, for example, Dubai has now reverted to a, a four and a half day, I think, working week. So, you know, it's um, it's something that our world leaders are aware of. You know, yeah. that people are stressed and, you know, this is a huge social challenge. Yeah. But to what extent are they proactively addressing this? And this is another little, you know, a little thing that I have in the back of my head is the difference between proactive and reactive leadership. And when do you do the proactive and when do you react? Um, I guess a lot of leaders are aware, though, that we have created these wonderful ivory towers in which hundreds of people all work collectively. And all of a sudden we've realized as a result of the pandemic that we don't need them, mm. that they've been empty, virtually empty for the best part of two years or more. And that that's an economic question, isn't it? You know, if you, as a leader, you're in charge of a workplace and you can't, you're challenged to get your workforce to come into your place of work, or you've given the option in Norway, where I live, everybody's been given the option where they work in um, a collective workplace, obviously not schools, but outside of schools, that they may work from home. And you can bet your bottom dollar that they are able to work far more effectively from home and given transport costs. These I, I remember going to um... much more economic. Maybe three or four years ago, I went to a principal's training center in London. It's run by the PTC, the principal's training center. So shout out to them. That's a free plug for Bambi Betts or Bambi, who's the director of PTC. Um, amazing, amazing um, opportunity to connect with principals and school leaders for a week residential. One of my biggest takeaways from the workshop um, I attended on instructional supervision and evaluation is if we're going to bring joy back to our profession in teaching we need to be thinking about autonomy and 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 teacher agency as well you know for example teachers uh, all organizations majority of them will have an appraisal system which mm -hmm. outlines very rigid clear this is you, these are the standards, show us evidence according to those standards. Mm -hmm. But I haven't yet seen an appraisal or an evaluation system which allows teachers to develop their own portfolios, which allows teachers to develop their own pathways. If they are a, an outstanding teacher, you know, what options do I have? 
for my personal growth and practice. It's almost always dictated to me that if you're an outstanding teacher, you'll have a 10% pay rise. What if I don't want a pay rise? What if I want to have um, a position of responsibility in the school? Mm. What if I want to um, utilize my spare time coaching other teachers? So building in opportunities for autonomy and agency with our teachers, with our workers, so that they have a voice in their pathways, in their future. I think that can also contribute to sustainability and also motivation and stability. I, I agree. I think one of the things that challenges institutions, and I think it comes from the name institution, they are very institutionalized and they are very stuck in ways of things happening from decades previous. And one thing, and I'm sure that you've all may well have noticed this as well, is that when you are coming out of or trying to work towards something different, this word agency is relatively new. Giving some examples of what that might look like in your context can be very helpful to different institutions to know the types of pathways that they might take. Because there's nothing worse than being, I'm, I'm sure you've been in training exactly like this, whereby you're, you're given the theory and somebody's there spouting forth, you're put into groups and you're given a specific task to do. And as you're transferred, be it virtually or physically, if it's face-to-face -face in your group, the first thought that's in your mind is, I haven't a clue what the activity wants me to do. Now, if you're slightly older and grey-haired like me, you'll probably be the first person to say, does anyone in the group have an idea about what they're supposed to do? Mm -hmm. Because the younger people don't dare say mm -hmm. that. They are hoping that somebody else will, will come and say that. But as soon as one person said it, everybody else says, I'm to clue. Yeah. And then the next thing, you're either typing in the chat box to the leader of the, of the training, or your hands up and you're trying to pull the workshop leader over. And then they give you a contextualized example. And I think actually we're very bad at doing that. We're great at using buzzwords, mm -hmm. you know, um, but we're really bad at coming up with possible contextual examples that help people understand how it might look in their organization. I think that could be very helpful. Absolutely. And I think that's a, you know, I have, you know, learned, it's like a leadership crash course on you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's really so. opened up my eyes because I shared something with you off air that could potentially change, you know, my my position of where I am, not only in the world, but my day job as well. Yeah. And, and I think there's been a lot of pearls and reflections that I'm going to keep hold of and cherish in, in you know, the future visits, evaluations that we do and um, yes. other roles that we have too. Well, it goes, goes very much back to thinking about teacher agency because a lot of leaders and whether it's office worker agency, a lot of people will be a little afraid of that word because they may not know what would that mean? How could that possibly look like in my place of work? So I think if some examples could be really good so that 
people, especially if it's teachers, because we know there's nothing worse than a teacher. I'm a teacher myself, so are you. Um, so some examples that could guide them along the way as to what you're sort of thinking. But then somebody asked me a question yesterday, which I found really intriguing and I've been reflecting on ever since. And that was about a student agency mm -hmm. in the context of them developing central ideas and minds of inquiry for units of work. Okay, here's the scenario now, and this is school talk for a minute, if you'll allow me. Am I allowed that? Go for it, Sonia. Okay. <laughs> so, you don't get paid for the, this school talk, though. No, you're in, a, you're in a school and you have a beautifully articulated curriculum. Hmm. You've got documents that lie behind your curriculum that with broad learning expectations and you've vertically and horizontally aligned everything from the lowest level in your school, nursery school, up to and including the diploma program last year. And then along comes the IB that beautifully suggests that students should write central ideas and lines of inquiry. What is going to happen to your articulated curriculum? Where's the student knowledge that knows about those broad brushstrokes? Where are the workshops that the teachers have attended to suddenly sitting in the student's head? I was really mulling over that. I was almost writing a question to all the, to all the um, managers in the context of the IB to ask them, how, how do they see that that would develop over time? You see the, the question, that you see the, the no-go there. So I'm wondering about the wisdom and whether or not over time that might change. Given I think what's important in these types of scenarios are parameters. You know, yes. what are the parameters? And for us in, in education, we have objectives that yes. define those parameters of, you know, what's the balance between student-driven inquiry and, you know, what students need to know in order to progress to the next level, the next yeah. grade and move on to the next phase yeah. or stage in their education. So I think parameters are, are important, but, you know, there's a difference between having parameters and having boundaries because you know for me boundaries are non-negotiable mm. you know every workplace needs to have boundaries non-negotiables acceptable mm. and unacceptable performance but parameters i think can promote creativity and innovation you yes. know these are the expectations but how you get there that's down to you to innovate it to is, it's a bit like saying to a workplace, supposing you have a workplace with 12 people and those 12 people are individual specialists. That's why they were chosen for the job. And previously they've worked nine to five and everybody's moaning about working nine to five. So the boss, the work leader says, well, I'll tell you what, develop your own flexible working schedule mm -hmm. and as long as it, you do x number of hours per week that's fine now straight away the boundaries have gone because those experts may never end up i suppose there will be some common shared time mm -hmm. but the purpose of each expert is kind of like watered down in a way because they are no longer going to be able to access each other to put the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together in the workplace between nine to five. Because some people may say, 
I want to be at home all day, nine to five. My working hours are going to start from five and onwards because I can be with my family. And, and this is the type of autonomy and agency and creativity, I think, that needs to mirror a changing workforce. You know, yeah. a, a workforce yeah. and individuals who are beginning to question, why do I need to work five days a week? And, you know, I only have two days to shop, to clean, to spend. This is, you know, it's a real challenge. And I think business leaders, industry leaders, educational leaders have a lot of opportunity to demonstrate proactive leadership in some of the areas that we have unpacked in, in this episode, which um, I know, Sonia, is not going to be your first and last episode. Oh, it's <laughs> really really looking forward to having you back on uh, on the podcast to share so much of your wealth of knowledge and experience of leading of managing of supporting schools and educators across africa europe the middle east and the americas you work as well um so you know we're, we're so grateful um to have been able to connect through our world of work as well sonia you know, this well, is it's, another it's interesting for me as well, because it makes me think and it, it's a good, you know, it makes you think it makes you question your your line of thinking. Uh, and it also gives you new ideas as well. You know, when you discuss with someone like yourself, you're very knowledgeable. So, you know, it it, it creates different types of thoughts and ideas as well and how likewise in different contexts too okay. so that's great. there is so much value in hearing perspectives hearing multiple voices hearing different ideas there is so much value and and you know i think we ought to see humanity first rather than a culture or a faith or a religion. Absolutely, I agree. Definitely. Sonia, it honestly has been such a joy. It's been a real pleasure connecting with you. And I'm so happy that um, you were able to join us on Real Talk with Riz Khan for episode seven, titled Leading and Managing in Challenging Times. As we mentioned, this is an unstructured conversation uh, and discussion. And I hope that for those listening and watching, there have been some light bulb moments some pearls of wisdom and or reflection that have made you stop and as Sonia highlights to think because you know that's what we need to do at these cha uh, challenging times is slow down hit the brakes to stop to reflect to think and I think Sonia you have articulated this in three powerful words having hope faith and love for ourselves and for others as as well. Any closing remarks from yourself, Sonia? Well, no, I mean, thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, it's made me think. And I think um, don't expect all plans to go to plan. They never do. I love it. <laughs> Sonia, thank you so much. And everybody who's listening and watching, thank you uh, once again for making some room and space in your lives to view and or listen Real Talk with Riz Khan. Um, episode number eight is down the road. It's coming, God willing. And uh, I look forward to connecting with you then. But until the next time we connect and we e-meet, for now, good health and, and blessings to one and to all. Take care and thanks for listening and watching again. Bye. Thank you.